Hello, welcome back to Move This World with Sarah, conversations in social emotional learning. I recently sat down with author and entrepreneur, Ben Higgins, who entered the national spotlight as one of the contestants on The Bachelor. What made him stand out amongst the hundreds of personalities we see on reality TV was his openness and honesty in talking about the vulnerability and insecurities we all feel. We talked about the labels we put on ourselves and the labels others put on us and how we want to be seen. We talked about how we hold ourselves accountable to loving ourselves so that we have love to give to others. In fact, Ben shared how early on in his entering the public eye, he asked four friends to be his accountability partners to call him out if they ever saw him changing at the core level of his humanity. We spoke about the importance of creating daily habits that give us the space we need to center ourselves so that we may function at our highest level. For him, it's exercise and taking walks outside. For me, it's my morning writing and dancing. We discussed the dangers of loneliness, the wisdom that comes from sitting in silence, and how leaning into our challenges, while difficult, can make us love ourselves even more. Ben wonders what the world would be like if we talked more openly about our pain and suffering, and if we started to have empathy for one another based on our experiences. By confronting difficult truths, we cultivate vulnerability. And if we can build relationships that lead with honesty and don't shy away from uncomfortable conversations, what a world that would be. Before we dive into our conversation, want to give us an opportunity to center ourselves and ground ourselves. So let's give ourselves a moment to drop into the next 45 minutes or so together. And let's identify if we could let go of something as we move into this discussion and take with us something as we move into discussion, what that might be. What might you let go of and what might you take with you as we move forward so that we can be fully present? I can go first. I want to let go of guilt and take with me positivity. I would like to let go of hurry and take with me curiosity. Thank you for sharing that. So Ben, you have written and spoken at length about connection and meaning and your journey in cultivating connection, not just with others, which is what we typically associate connecting with, but connecting to yourself and how when we connect to ourselves, we're able to connect with others. So I'm just curious to kick off our conversation to learn how do you connect with yourself? I think it's an everyday process. And part of what I have to do daily is speaking to myself truth and what I know is true. So for me, my faith is something very important to me. My faith is something that is true to me. And so I have to speak daily into myself on how I know God sees me. And then from that, I can also speak truth into me. Okay, how do my friends see me? My family see me? Also, how do I see myself? And the way I ask myself, how do I see myself? It's a really difficult process. It sounds very easy when you explain it, but it's really hard to do. Is every day strip away any label 
that's going to be placed on me that day. Any expectation, anything that I'm carrying with me from the days, the weeks, the years before, and ask myself daily, who am I? If everything else goes away, like who am I if I was a newborn child again? What is left standing? Who am I in my core? Once I do that, at least I know some truth about myself and released anything that's been created in my mind about myself. And once I know that, then I can walk into the day. It sounds simple, but we know is pretty complex, this idea of labels and this question of how do you see yourself and how do other people see you and how do you want to be seen and is that aligned? Even that question, there's a number of Move This World exercises where we are asking students to reflect on that. So given the life you live, the chaos of the day, how do you find those kernels of opportunity to actually do that? I don't want to come off and say that I find those moments every day. I don't. I desire those moments. I look for those moments. I have many moments where the day starts earlier than I desire and it ends later than I desire. And the only thing I can possibly do is to try to get my head back to a place of stillness before I go to bed that night. Those are unhealthy days for me. Those are days that if I do them too often, I know that I am on the verge of something not great happening inside myself. And so let's talk about a healthy day. A healthy day is that I designate 6.45 to 8 a.m. to work out. Part of my workout is hot yoga, just kind of really slow, flowy. In those moments, I can either just sit on my mat and hang out and just be if I feel like being, or I can get moving. And then it turns into a little workout. My workout really kind of gets me feeling better about myself. It helps my body wake up in the morning. And then at lunchtime, I walk and I walk because I can't do anything around my house. I can't be on my phone. I meditate on that walk. I contemplate on that walk. I think through where my days has been and where it's going. But also I think about what I really enjoy doing. What I found is a good practice for me is who have I neglected in my life that I don't want to neglect that I haven't neglected on purpose, but who haven't I talked to recently? And I make a mental note of that so that Later that evening, I can sit down and connect with them again or send them a message and say, I was thinking about you today. And finally, and this is, for me, it's healthy, or at least it has been to this point in my life. I know for some it's not. But after the work day's done, I like to do something that I enjoy. So if that's pour myself a drink and I sit down and I watch the sun go down over the mountains, or if it's going for another walk and doing this walk with no intention, just to take pictures of the elk maybe that are by the house or the buffalo or some birds. It's me just getting out my yard and digging in the dirt, getting my hands dirty. Whatever it is that day that I feel like doing, I like to do that. And I just do that and without any expectation or any stressors on me. And if I can get those three things done, they might be for 15 minutes. They might be for an hour. They might be for two hours. I feel like I'm less of a robot and more human. Totally. That resonates with me. I know that if I don't exercise or move my body or have a morning creative writing meditative process, my husband will call me out and say, you haven't done your morning pages. Why don't you go in the other room, do that? Because I'm not the best version of myself if I fall off. So on the days where you don't find the time to do your morning workout or have your midday walk, What happens and how do you hold yourself accountable for reconnecting to yourself? Because I love how you started off where you said, I don't want to give the impression that I do this every day and I'm perfect because, of course, we're human and life is hard. And despite how much we 
focus on this and bring intention to this, sometimes there are competing demands that just make it more complicated. So how do you hold yourself accountable? Well, I enjoy it. And so I hold myself accountable because I, in my life, oftentimes over schedule myself for things that aren't enjoyable to me. They're tasks. Tasks aren't exactly healthy. They sometimes need to be done, but they're not healthy to me. And so I schedule this time in because I enjoy this time. This is selfish time for me. This is time that allows me to love on myself so I can go out and love on my neighbors better. That's important for me in my work. It's also important for me and how I function as a husband or as a friend, but it's also just important for me as a human personally is to give myself that space. Now, if I don't give myself that space, if it's typically a problem for me and my team some way or another, and then I know that within the next couple of days, it might be the all hands on deck. Hey, I'm unscheduling everything that was on my plate for Wednesday, and I'm going to spend a full day of just getting back to center. That doesn't happen often. It's probably happens once or twice a year. But when it does, everybody around me knows that, hey, this is a thing that's being cried out. This needs to be done. If I don't have that ability, which sometimes I don't, say you're traveling, which happens and you're in a hotel, you're in an airplane, you're off schedule a little bit. What I can do anywhere I'm at is I can, and this is weird. My wife thought it was weird when we first met, but it's not. I like to call it, I turn my brain off. And so I turn off all the lights. I play a playlist that I have on my Spotify and I sit in darkness and I just let my mind calm and my thoughts come over me. And I just take a bunch of deep breaths and I just sit for as long as I can sit without getting anxious in that moment. Sometimes it's a long time. Sometimes it isn't that long, but I just do it until I stop enjoying it again. And usually when the lights come back on and I stand back up and the music stops playing, I typically, at least it hasn't happened yet, feel at least closer to being human again. I think it's so powerful just even knowing what you need, the self-awareness. Like, sure, taking action, yes, that can be hard. But being able to say these are the elements that are so critical to me being able to function at the highest level. Right now I'm pregnant with our third and I've continued to dance in New York City with professional dancers who've probably never even seen a pregnant person, let alone someone my age. And the other night, I just looked at my husband and I started crying. I said, I just feel so grateful to know that if I'm not dancing, I don't feel like a person. I just feel like a robot. And so I think it's really powerful that you know what you need. And despite the chaos of your life and when you're traveling, saying like, okay, I might not be able to go have a walk in the mountains because I'm not home outside Denver, but I can turn the lights off in my hotel room and have this playlist. You entered the public eye on The Bachelor, which is about finding love and relationship with someone else. But how do you focus in terms of loving yourself and building a relationship with yourself, which is what we've been talking about. You one time said on national television that you felt unlovable. What work have you done to overcome this and to love yourself so that you can in turn love your wife and others? I've done a lot of work. The therapies and everything we've talked about has came from 
me feeling a certain way, disconnected, like the outsider. Hey, the more people get to know me, the less they're going to like me. All those things have kind of shown me I need help. Big part of that help is exactly what we've been talking about, implementing those things. The other side of that is speaking truth into myself. Am I unlovable? Well, in my mind, yes, I am. But in truth, am I? I don't believe that. Something's happened in my life that's made that belief sit in my heart, especially when I'm not at my healthiest. And so as a result, I need to continue to remind myself what is truth and find ways to reinforce that truth that I am not unlovable. However, it still exists. As much time has been spent working on this and working through it and identifying it and putting words to emotion, it still exists in my life. Instead of getting frustrated and shutting down when those feelings kind of arise in me, typically now my question I have to ask myself is what is going on beyond this, right? What is happening even deeper than the insecurity that continues to haunt me? What haven't I been doing? There's a beautiful thing in the Jewish tradition. It's called a guilt sacrifice. It's been passed down still in, in modern day Judaism, less in Christianity, which is a little frustrating for me. But the guilt sacrifice came from a question asked by one of the laymen to a rabbi saying, okay, we can sacrifice at the altar and all of our sins are forgiven, right? But this dude just burnt down my forest like two days ago. Now he's at the altar saying all of his sins are forgiven. I don't think they're forgiven. That's messed up. And what they implemented at the time was before you came to the altar to get all of your sins forgiven, it was expected that you would also confront the conflicts that existed in your life before you stepped into the place of the holies. And so for me, I tell that story because it's something that I am implementing in my life over the last year is offering more guilt sacrifices. Who have I hurt? Typically, if I'm in an unhealthy place, somebody's hurt me or I've hurt somebody. And I need to, instead of just letting it pass by, I need to confront it in a healthy and loving way when I'm ready to say, hey, there is pain that was caused with this. That was hard on me. So For me, one of the ways that I've overcame all this is to confront the things that are going on in my life is the more I stand up and I confront difficult situations, the more I recognize those, the more actually I do start to love myself, the more peace at least there is within myself, the more I can begin to have some confidence in myself. Because typically, I don't know if you found this to be true, but I learned at a young age, I just never implemented it, was the harder the conversations that you had, the more beauty that came from them. And for me personally, I love myself when I'm involved in some beautiful things. And so I've just not shied away from some of the most difficult stuff, even if it is those moments where I feel most unlovable. If I can confront it, ask for help within it, and we can work through it, there's beauty that comes. And the beauty is what reminds me that I am loved. That's interesting. The idea of beauty coming from confronting difficult truth, that requires vulnerability, significant vulnerability, because you have to be honest with those truths. How do you cultivate vulnerability? And this is kind of a two-part question. Most people, I would say, haven't done the work in order to be vulnerable, that being vulnerable is incredibly scary. And so even Getting to that place of honest conversation or even conflict where you can have and create beautiful moments together, they're not necessarily ready for. So do you surround yourself with the relationships that are 
ready for vulnerability? Well, a couple years ago when I was on the show, I just knew I was so unfamiliar with anything that was getting done within that process. People talking about me, celebrating me and criticizing me. People talking about me in general, having pictures on magazines and grocery stores, having people reach out to me for stuff that they never reached out to me before. It felt like chaos to me. And so at that time, I wasn't ready to talk about any of it because I didn't understand any of it yet. But I had asked four of my friends if they would be accountability people to me, that if I like really started to get over my head and I really started to think I was the coolest thing walking this earth and I started to change my core as a human, that they would call me out on it. But they'd also tell me when I was doing good and they accepted that challenge. That was a big step for me. That was actually really hard for me to even ask that of them because there's a lot of fear in that. Like, how are they going to? come down on me hard, but it was people I trusted. It was people I knew loved me. It was people that I knew wanted to see me thrive. And so that was the first step to that. I built a community there. However, even with my wife today, one of our biggest conversations is around my inability to communicate some of my hardest moments. Can't put words to it oftentimes. And so sometimes, at least with her, it's telling her, hey, I don't know how to put words to this yet. And then we can either dive into it and try to put words to it, or she can just let me sit in it for a bit. And that's something that I've gotten more familiar with is sitting in it for a bit so that when I speak and I put words to it, my vulnerability in that moment is more accurate. It's not just me spewing things and coming out of things in emotion and frustration. And so there's some wisdom to that. I think sitting in the silence is so important to me. And then it, sitting in the silence has allowed me to be more vulnerable because I'm thought through at a deeper level with where I'm at in life instead of just starting to talk and speaking a lot of untruths. Sitting in silence or talk about sitting in the well when it's a time of sadness or difficulty is so important. But for society, it's viewed or looked down upon as not being a solution-oriented, problem-solving moment. We need to talk about it, or we can solve this. And so what do you think we need to do? What kind of conversations do we need to have to give people permission to, as you say, sit in the stillness and acknowledge that, yeah, there are difficult experiences and emotions and they're important to recognize. And we shouldn't just brush over them with rose-colored glasses and rainbows and pretend like everything is great all of the time. Mm. Well, what I would like to do in my life, at least, is allow people the space to know the truth to what happens in those silent moments. It's not always pretty. (laughs) It's not always easy. As you just said, there's not rose-colored glasses to it. I'm not telling you that if you sit in silence, all of a sudden you're going to wake up and everything's going to feel right. It might get harder for a while. But I would also say there's a challenge to that. I am motivated from challenge. I am motivated from curiosity. And so when I sit in that silence and things feel heavier, what I ask myself in that moment is, what am I learning? Or what is there to learn? If somebody would ask me for my best advice, I would say, hey, in those moments, lean in a little bit to it. Don't push it aside. Don't neglect it. Don't try to wrap it up in a nice little bow and say everything's okay. I like to say lean into it, meaning learn from it. To me in my life makes it less scary. It also makes it a pursuit, a journey. What is going on in my heart and my soul and my mind and my spirit that is making me feel heavy? Or something cool is 
What if we started to do that same thing when life is full of joy and peace and contentment and bliss and those really great moments? What if in those moments when we sat and sat and we're like, oh, I'm feeling pretty good right now. What if we leaned into that also and said, what is it that I've done or what is it that's going on in my spirit, my soul and my heart that's making me feel this way? And when we lean in a little bit, when we look at it as a challenge, I personally learn a lot about myself. And that's something I like to celebrate is when I'm learning about myself. And we have to acknowledge that not everyone is ready to do that, that learning about yourself means that we're going to uncover things that we're really proud of and that we love about ourselves and things that we want to evolve and face some hard truths. And that is self-work. You talk really frankly about anxiety and depression. How do you think society has evolved in being able to openly address these issues? Well, I find it interesting because it's the anxiety and panic and depression. They're fairly popular words today. I was reading an article two weeks ago, and it was talking about how that's a dangerous thing, that it's not putting the weight behind those feelings and emotions as we need. But what I think people are trying to do is they've held up and welled up all these emotions for so long that now they're just spewing it out, saying, I needed to talk about this. I wanted to talk about it. Now I can talk about it. I think what we're finding is that more people than we realized or more people than we personally wanted to admit around us are also struggling with the same stuff we are. It might be one of the thread lines to the human experience is that we've all had pain and we've all had suffering. And if we started to speak about that more openly, if we started to have empathy based on those experiences, what would it look like for humanity? What would it look like if I looked at my neighbor and I needed to be sensitive to their story and sensitive to their situation? And so I think we're trying. I would actually say I'm encouraged. There's been moments where I've been like, okay, this is getting dangerous, where we're not respecting these experiences and these words like we should. I think as long as there's a respect behind them, and as long as there's an understanding that when somebody says it, we should try to believe them, then it's actually really beautiful what's happening is because I think for so long, in fact, for as long as I can remember, other than some of the great poets and prophets of our time from centuries ago, people haven't talked about it in a while. And I think that is being carried down from our fathers and our mothers to us today. And I think today we've just said, in a sense, I can't take it anymore. I have to talk about it. If I don't talk about this part of me, I don't know how anybody's ever going to get to know me because this is such a huge part of who I am today is these tough moments. And so I think we're trying. I'm encouraged because we're trying. We won't do it perfect, but we're doing it. What do you think was the impetus? Do you think it was the pandemic? Do you think it was the isolation of even young people? We're seeing unprecedented levels of anxiety, depression, suicide in high schools. What was the catalyst for us as a society to say, this is no longer taboo. We are going to bring mental health to the forefront. We are going to talk about anxiety, depression without this uneasiness and make sure that it is a part of how we check in on one another. I think there's one factor that might be common that we could probably prove loneliness. Loneliness is doubled and tripled starting in the 1980s. And we started to really study loneliness today. I think it's 60 some percent of the population has experienced a deep level of loneliness where it's affected their health and their moods and how they deal with themselves and people. And so I think that's one thing we living on earth today, we're told they can be anything they want to be. 
And wrapped up in that by our schools and by our families with really well intentions was you can be a doctor and you can be a president. You could be a politician. You could be a lawyer. You could be a X, Y, Z, right? All these labels that was placed on us. And you could do that. What it did in our minds was it created this hierarchy of a career, this hierarchy of meaning, this hierarchy of purpose. We built this hierarchy of labels of what people could be. And then the truth is a lot of these kids never became those. I didn't become those, right? I was told I could be president. I could be a lawyer. I could be a doctor. I didn't become any of that. I got a general business degree and shoot, I'm selling coffee for a living and scratching by and talking to people about random stuff. And in our <laughs> generations made us feel like disappointments at some point, right? Made us take a look at our life and say, yeah, I didn't do what I thought I could do. But in fact, we did far greater things because we became hopefully the best and biggest version of ourselves. And I never became what I thought I could become. And from anger became a passion and a passion became a message where it's like, no, 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 I'm doing just fine. And that's kind of been communicated in multiple different ways. I think today is this message, the shouting from the rooftops is look at me. I'm doing just fine. Sometimes that still comes from a place of anger. I think in the healthiest moments, it comes from a place of contemplation and thought and wisdom where it's done softly and in love. It said, you know, hey, I'm proud of myself and I hope you're proud of me too. But I think that's one of the reasons why we're talking about stuff that maybe felt unfamiliar to us before is because there was kind of a common consistence of anger built into a passion. And that passion had to be voiced because a group of people were going to feel like they were going to die with never reaching what they thought they could reach or never reaching what the world expected them to reach. And you think that's a big impetus for the uptick in anxiety, depression that we're living through today? Well, I think it's one of many factors. I think that might be one of the common things that we have in our generation. We were the you can be anything generations. I think a lot of the uptick, too, is the loneliness. I mean, we can blame a thousand things, social media. We can blame discontentment in career again. We can blame the religious issues that exist all over the world, right? I mean, as a Christian myself, like there's many moments that I'm, most moments where I'm frustrated with the faith tradition that I am still a part of and still actively a part of and still care deeply about. Where we're voicing and where we're discontent and where there's anxiety and panic because it feels like we're living in a time, there's a lot of hurry and there's a lot of speed to our life now for the first time ever. And as humans, we're trying to evolve and figure out how in the world to handle it. I don't know yet what that spits us out, but I think a lot of the speed at which we live our lives and a lot of the discontentment and those huge topics in our lives are forcing us to feel more confused and chaotic than ever. At Move This World, we talk a lot about coping mechanisms and recognizing that there's so much that we cannot change. And how do we navigate those challenges? How do we move through disappointment? How do we remove labels to your earlier point in this conversation and see ourselves for who we are? And there are positive coping mechanisms and coping mechanisms that aren't as healthy. And we have choices in how we respond to stress or conflict or difficult situations. You've been very open about how your addiction to painkillers was numbing your emotional pain. How did you work through that And what was your process like in developing more healthy tools for managing and dealing with your emotional pain? For me, what I found was an excitement in the journey. Again, the challenges proved to myself that I could deal with it, that I could fight with it, that I could work with it. There's a curiosity that is the question of, could I actually, am I a strong enough human to actually confront these things that are 
circling inside of my head and actually work with it. And am I a big enough person to ask for help? And when I do, is that weakening who I am or is that strengthening who I am? I found it strengthened who I am. It's made me more proud of myself. And so I was, from years of my life, numbing these things with anything I could find so that I never had to confront them. So as a result, I never had to grow from them. And I was never able to celebrate the victories, big and small, from some of my hardest times or celebrate the days that feel just awesome. The final piece of that was I had a moment when I was numbing and I was was very high that I looked at myself in the mirror. And I remember seeing in myself, you're not the man you ever claimed that you would be or that you ever wanted to be. And I started to replay Again, going back to that guilt offering thing, some of the people I've hurt, some of the people that I've neglected, some of the people I've pushed aside, some of the people I've treated like objects, some of the people that I have just completely dismissed in my life. And I said, is this a path where it's going to cause any type of good story to be told about you or within you? And I knew at that moment that a lot of that was due to my numbing, due to my not confronting some of the things that were hurting me. And so I wasn't growing as a person. In fact, I was just trying to cover it all up for as long as I could until I could get my next fix because I was just trying to hide it all. And so I don't claim to be a great human, but I at least claim that I would like to be. And I mean that. And when I'm doing nothing in my life to try to get there, that's not a good place for me to live in because I can't lie to myself. When I take my last breath, one of the things that scares me the most is I would lay there and said, you faked it the whole time. And I want that for myself. So now when you do encounter challenges or loneliness or sadness, what are some of the ways that you manage? Well, I mean, going back to the practices before, calling upon the accountability group around me. It's getting back into some type of meditative practice. It's sitting in silence. It's also knowing that I've got to strap my boots on and start to discover what it is that's going in myself, what challenges are existing. What is my body telling me? What am I telling myself about myself that I need to learn from? One of my biggest consistent struggles is my ego and my pride. And so sometimes those moments that feel hardest, I mean, and this isn't everybody's belief, but I would just say is God humbling me in in some level. They're not always like deep mental times of problem. I don't think God desires that for any of us. But some of those moments where I'm feeling just like, man, I'm not top of the world right now. It's me reminding myself that I'm not top of the world. And that's okay to understand my place in humanity and understand my place in my community and my friends group and my family. But it's leaning in. So nowadays, instead of numbing it and pushing it aside and finding ways to cover it up, what I do is I say, okay, it's time to lean in. I don't want to lean in. I don't like leaning in. This feels really scary to lean in. But it's time to lean in. The leaning in, the self-work, it's one of the hardest things we can do. It takes tremendous courage. What would you say to someone who hasn't done it yet, who's about to dip their toe in the water, afraid of uncovering the truth? What would you say to that person to help them rip off the Band-Aid and do what will probably be scary and hard at first, but will lead to these beautiful moments that you speak of? Well, first I would say, don't do it alone. For me, and and there's a period in my life where I felt like my friends and my family weren't going to understand where I was at. So I had to get, wanted to get professional help where I was like an unbiased person who didn't have a clue anything about me, where I just needed to like do some word therapy. So that'd be one thing is either get that accountability group around you 
if it's one friend, if it's two friends, if it's a father, mother, if it's a sister, brother, whoever it is that you trust and you feel comfortable with and ask them to be there for you in this moment. There's nothing that's a better compliment for me when one of my friends asks me to be that person to them. It just shows that they trust me. So that's one thing I would say, don't do it alone. The next thing, and this might sound simple, but I believe the alternative to not leaning in is a lot worse. It might be scary to lean in. It might feel like you're exploring something brand new, but I think as humans, we're a mystery amongst ourselves. And so I think the mystery is something that's beautiful, that's built out of love, that's built out of a connection with each other and with the living things around us. And I believe leaning into that mystery as fluffy and mystical as that might sound actually is something beautiful. And I believe not doing that is missing out on maybe the most crucial piece of our human experience. And I believe if you don't lean in, you could be like me, where I was sitting for years numbing it and not fully experiencing who I am as a human and going in down a really heavy place to where my value was in question, my worth was in question, my space and time on this earth was in question. And I believe leaning in allowed me to see a different angle, an angle that I could become proud of. It's not always easy. It doesn't happen immediately, but at least I took accountability or responsibility for my human experience. I agree. And I think that having lived what you've lived, you can say that, but for some who haven't done it yet and made the leap, it can still be really scary. So I hope that hearing you talk about the alternative being worse gives a sense of support and confidence to take action. Well, let me add to that too. People in my life that I like to listen to when it comes to really heavy situations are people that have been through it. People that don't just have words, but have taken action. And so some people might listen to this right now and be like, this is crazy. I've never felt this way in my life. I would just say, don't forget it when a moment that gets really hard and you want to listen to voices that have been there and maybe you'll get a small little glimpse of what life could look like for you. And allow them to sit in stillness or sit in the well and not try to just pull them up. In your book, Alone in Plain Sight, you explore how shared pain can be a bridge that connects us. And in order to connect through our pain, we must first be authentic. Why do you think people struggle with authenticity? Well, A lot of times it comes down to how we think the world will see us when we're hurting or when we're not our perfect little selves. Our shared pains are a bridge to connect with each other. I think that we don't assume that anybody else is struggling the way we're struggling. And I think we feel very alone in those moments oftentimes and very much like the outsider in those moments. And I would argue that those moments are the things that make us most human and actually might connect us the most because I think we've all been through it. And so I just think if I were to put my theory on it, it would be because we don't assume one, probably anybody else cares Two, anybody else will get it or three that anybody else has ever been through it. And as a result, that makes it difficult to find the spaces to be authentic within because we have to feel always that we're covering up one of the most consistent and some of the most connecting pieces of our lives. Was it vulnerable for you to write that book? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Talked about addiction, depression, a little bit of anxiety, more panic and failed relationships or people in my life, women that I've mistreated in horrible ways. Yeah, that sucks. That's not fun at all. But I did it so that hopefully somebody would read it and go, okay, somebody else has done this too. I just can't imagine I'm the only one. 
Sure. And so how did you move through that so that you could be vulnerable? What do you do to cultivate vulnerability and even in that moment of saying, I'm going to put this out there to the world and people are going to read it? Mostly just because I had this idea, this dream that it would help somebody take one more step or take one more breath and live one more day, I guess. Maybe it was my own God complex, but I just thought that maybe what I had to share was important enough to where the more vulnerable I could share it and the more I could share every ounce of me that somebody out there would read it, just even one person and just say, okay, he's been there too, where I wasn't covering it up and I wasn't sugarcoating it. It wasn't fun. It wasn't easy. It wasn't ideal. It wasn't a part of my little accountability group that was supposed to be the people that heard it. I just had this dream that somebody else needed to hear this too. And as a result, I thought I would do it and stuff with the consequences or celebrate the victories. Well, thank you for your courage because that's what it is, is bravery and your emotional honesty. So thank you for sharing so openly with us. Before we close, let's just take an opportunity to ground ourselves, recognizing that we're moving into whatever parts of our day come next. Thank you so much, Ben, for sharing so openly in this discussion. I really appreciate your honesty. Let's go ahead and close with three deep breaths. Let's take this first breath for the power and potential of leaning in. I just love how much you talk about leaning in to our truths. So let's just take this first breath for leaning in. Let's take this second breath for us, for those of us who are taking the time to think about these issues and to use your word from the beginning, what you were bringing into this discussion, curiosity, who are curious about ways that we can better ourselves and more deeply connect to ourselves and to others. So this breath for curiosity. Let's take this third and final breath for ourselves. May our days be meaningful and productive and our nights peaceful. Thank you so much, Ben. I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Move This World with me, Sarah Potler-Lahane. Before you go, wherever you are right now, join me for one final breath and hold in your mind a word or phrase that you are taking away from this conversation. Breathe in and out. At Move This World, we know social and emotional wellness is necessary, relevant, and impacts our everyday lives at school, in our homes, at our workplaces, and in our relationships. The tools we need to develop are critical for our happiness and success as individuals and as communities. Together, we can create a world where everyone belongs. To explore more ways to move this world, visit us at movethisworld.com or follow us on Twitter at move underscore this world. If you liked this episode, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced by Jonathan Jacobson and Seaplane Armada. I cannot wait to move this world with you.